Welcome to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Here, you will find discussion on all things EMDR from EMDR-approved trainers and consultants, as well as some co-hosts. EMDR is an approach to the entire therapeutic journey, not just reprocessing trauma. This podcast will feature discussion on the therapeutic relationship, understanding and using the original eight-phase protocol, and what to do to bring deeper understanding to the why behind EMDR and what to do when you're stuck. This podcast is an invitation to connect and learn together about EMDR and the process of psychotherapy. We are glad that you're here. Thanks for checking out this podcast. Notice That is a project of Think Beyond a listener-funded media house focused on connecting humans through therapy and art. To keep this podcast going, we'd love for you to support us on Patreon by searching patreon.com slash thinkbeyondhealing in your favorite web browser. And don't forget to check out our new merch by going to our website at connectbeyondhealing.com and clicking on the merchandise tab. Welcome back to Notice That, an EMDR podcast. Melissa and I are here today with a couple of people that we want to interview (laughs) about information processing. When we were thinking about this episode, we're like, who should we talk to? We've got to find the experts. We reached out to some contacts that we have and found the host of the evidence-based therapist. (laughs) Okay, I'm being all weird about this, but really we have Bridger. (laughs) We did. Actually, I yelled across the room. I scheduled it on your calendar for you. I don't have that function, so you didn't do that. That's why you don't. (laughs) That's probably true. Let's just talk about that for a while. (laughs) So Caleb and Bridger are here. (laughs) Underwhelming. Sorry to build your anticipation. You guys are super excited to see the experts. Yes. (laughs) No, but really, I really do feel that. Like if I was to go to anyone, in fact, we do often Mm -hmm. to ask these questions and say, like, tell me more about this. Like it would be you guys. So on this topic, we wanted to get the brains of evidence-based therapists. So Bridger, you wear a lot of hats, Yeah. but today you're going to sit in as... I've asked for, yeah, autonomy to just wear my evidence-based therapist hat. So it's kind of an interesting experience because the listeners have noticed that not all of them listen to the evidence-based therapist. And so there are people learning just now that there's another what is that? podcast yeah. that we have yeah um another one we won't do the whole like intro of the evidence-based therapist but just search it if you want to listen along um <laughs> because today will be kind of just a, a taste of what it's like um what that podcast kind of environment is like but um yeah All that being said those who are used to hearing me in the notice that way it's my voice and i am me but i'm wearing a I you get to it. spin up yeah. about Unfettered. all the things. Just yes. like, yeah, just yeah. to go. And this is very much what we do on EBTs. We just do giant spin-ups, which is probably why it's, for me, it's exciting to be on the other side because 
Now we have people who ask us questions that can ground us. That's right. Which <laughs> there's not that. <laughs> make what could be very meaningless jargon, very purposeful. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Yeah. Do you want to know the the number one comment that I get when people are telling me about their listening experience of ABT? Because I feel like it's just revealing. <laughs> okay. Are we ready yeah, for the mirror? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so normally what, what gets said to me is, I love it. And I, I have to be able to pause it while I'm listening, right? Like that is the number one yeah. feedback that I get because um, the, the amount of denseness of information in each minute of that podcast, I think is, um, you know, probably double what mm-hmm. a Notice That episode is in terms, in terms of information density. And it's not like, you know, Notice That is exactly light, light. in terms, yeah. of, yeah. In terms of density. Yeah. Um, and so the, it is a, a full buffet, um, informationally speaking. And so today we're, we're going to maybe find the middle between the two. It'll be more dense than Notice That usually is and a little lighter than EBT usually is. A nice middle. And the, a nice middle ground. Yeah. That, that's the goal. I'm just realizing this is the first time you've been on Notice That. So we did that BHI theory creation, which you were there for. Was that on that? Yes. Was that on Notice That? Yes. Oh, okay. Cool. So maybe that was not. Time ago, but I don't think that. That. it wasn't a Notice That. It was like we released a BHI discussion. Oh, special. Yeah. So I think that's true. I think this is actually the first, first time. Yeah. So welcome, Caleb Boston. Thank you. To the Notice CB. That podcast. Excited to be here. <laughs> I was just listening to you guys on the way in, actually. So oh. This is like it's just, just a funny conglomerate <laughs> of so many states of being <laughs> in one space, yes. which is like friends uh-huh. meets professional partner meets I listen to you guys meets I work with you guys uh-huh. on other uh, podcasts. So. This is going to be a party. <laughs> this is going to be, yeah. It and is, we, and there's four of us in the studio. I don't know, have we ever done a podcast with four humans before? I'm sure we have. Not since the BHI. Yeah, it's, it's been a minute, mm-hmm. so there's going to be a lot of voices in the room. That's okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'll try to clean it up on the editing okay. side a little bit, but. <laughs> the technical, <laughs> I love it. Mm-hmm. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we here today? So yeah. I, think, I think that what feels fun to me is to imagine that um, EMDR is about to have a conversation with the theory of information processing. Yeah. And Jen and I are going to represent the world of EMDR, which feels quite massive. Very natural. But, but, oh, that's interesting. I said quite massive. She says quite natural. I feel like we have to represent that. I know. Yeah. Revelatory. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Then it shows our current mood, maybe. Um, (laughs) But we will wear that hat representing EMDR and turning to the world of information processing research to say, hey, guys, how does everything that you know inform the work that we do? Because when EMDR was originally created, all of this information wasn't available and it feels incredibly relevant to everything that EMDR is, the way that it was created the theory that we stand on, and how to make sense of how to continue to let EMDR evolve, um, theoretically and practically. So mm-hmm. that's that's how we're going to try to posture all of this. I love it. As I think <laughs> about learning about AIP the first time, like that was a new concept when I first took um, the EMDR training. I want to go back into that space and just mm-hmm. learn and absorb. So a lot of questions, a lot yeah. of like exploring deeper and then 
us trying to make that connection of how does that actually fit into the process of EMDR and mm -hmm. the the actual therapy session. Yeah, how, I'm just curious, just again as a sort of an aesthetic for the episode, this episode is a commentary or like a supplement, I guess, to the second chapter mm -hmm. of the book, mm -hmm. of Francine's book, which yeah. is titled Adaptive Information Processing, yes. right? Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be a great place, I think, for this to start. Yes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, the, you know, there is sort of a sprinkling of information um, about information processing for a couple of reasons. I think that that wasn't her main goal in that chapter. Um, she wasn't trying to do a deep dive into what information processing was because she was focused on putting forth AIP as the, the foundation of EMDR. The other truth is that a lot of the information that we now have wasn't available back then, mm -hmm. right? So so this can serve yeah. as a, a theoretical update to AIP, mm -hmm. um, which is exciting. Yeah. That we get mm -hmm. to do that. Yeah. And it's going to get spicy. Yeah. In the episode. Uh -huh. It is going to get spicy. And I would like to get I would like to get it spicy in both directions. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um like it to get spicy. So what and here's what I mean by that. I think that there's some spiciness that information processing theory can do in challenging some assumptions that EMDR makes. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. right? And I think also EMDR can then come back and say, "But why does that matter?" Mm -hmm. Right. Tell me why all of this deep brain science theory matters yeah. to what I do in the room with hurting humans. Make it matter to me. So I think that if we allow the conversation to be spicy in both directions, something really yeah. fun will happen. Yeah. Jen, do you mind if I ask a question? Not at all. Because I'm curious about the <laughs> posturing you said of going back into the first time you heard adaptive information processing. What's like your gut feeling of like when you learn about AIP, what did what was like the feeling you took away from it? Oh, it was transformational mm -hmm. in the way I conceptualized clients, humans, healing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was fortunately it was very early on in my career, which I'm so grateful for because it set the foundation to start to understand all of this is different than just a like diagnostic category of like, well, you just got the luck of the draw and here this is mm -hmm. and you have these symptoms and we need to fix them mm. into the this is all stemming from something in your past experiences and leading to a shift in the way you're making sense of the world mm. and the way you're understanding yourself and the experience that you went through mm -hmm. yeah i love i love that and i i would like to say that if we ever drift from that in this episode then we're we're actually talking about it wrong because yeah. like the feeling around, or the feeling within the neuroscientific community is still one of like inherent healing. Mm -hmm. Like if we innate. are, yeah, innate, yeah. If we are given the, the resources of safety and connection as being a social mammal, we will heal, we will mm -hmm. integrate, we will find adaptivity. That's just how we're biologically wired. So if, if the conversation drifts into a zone where it starts to feel like, we're not talking about like that. the inherent mm -hmm. adaptability of our system, mm -hmm. then we need to like do an anchor back because mm -hmm. that is still true even with all of the wealth of neuroscientific information that we have now that Francine maybe didn't have access to. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's still that like grounded tenet. Just on that, <coughs> that point as well of like what was available then, um, I think what today, at least I would say one of our intentions at least, is 
to give a way of organizing what was there and what is there now mm-hmm. in our understanding of information processing. And we're saying it very specifically information processing first, and then we're going to get to adaptive information processing. Mm-hmm. But today we're not, and I think this is just an editorial like choice we made of like, we're not going to get too deep into brain language as much as we are how to organize our understanding of information processing as an embodied experience being human memory when when you explain it from that perspective memory to me just makes all the sense in the world Mm -hmm. of it's important for you to hang on to this because it was meaningful we don't just remember everything Mm -hmm. uh, in conscious thought or recall there are things that get organized into a way that isn't going to be pulled up every second. Mm-hmm. But information processing has a very specific role in the resilience of our innate adaptability. Um, and I think that's what we're going to talk about today. Mm-hmm. I don't think that piece is emphasized, was emphasized enough in its original teaching of it, that it's not just that your, your system just does it. It does it for a reason. Mm-hmm. And that the exploring that is where I think we can therapeutically, that's the most important piece. Why is it yeah. that your system is referencing this moment? Like, why does that make sense? Why is it so necessary that, that it's holding on to it rigidly in yeah. some way? And so I think when I think back to learning about AIP, it was just like, well, this is what you're brain does like mm-hmm. this is a natural system and you can mm-hmm. count on we are created in a way that it's naturally going to take this process but that gets disrupted but then we don't talk about like it's for a reason and it's for that survival of the organism of the organism mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. yeah neuroscientists like it's it, it feels like it should be a joke but like the amount of times aristotle's quote of nature does nothing uselessly mm-hmm. is like put before any sort of article by a neuroscientist. Just like boom right at the <laughs> top. Like, it, yeah, it should be like kind of like a meme at this point okay. because yeah. I think we're all realizing that there is something about, an ad- there's an adaptive quality to everything that the brain and the body does, even when we would quote unquote call it a disorder mm-hmm. or maladaptive. Yeah, mm-hmm. And then in that moment, time becomes the key factor. Mm-hmm. Like. And that's, I think, what Francine is really wrestling with, with how do we go back into the past traumas and help the brain bring into the present more adaptive strategies? Time is the crux there. Is the brain closed to just seeing the world as the past, or is it open to seeing the world anew? Mm-hmm. Well, that's I was going to say time and opportunity, because mm-hmm. there, it's not just like silly brain don't you see that there's a much more adaptive way of organizing this information in the present? Mm -hmm. There's a reason it has the current structure and role in the maintenance of the system that it does. Mm -hmm. That's where, again, I love that we get to have this conversation in this sort of long form where we can just set aside any connotations of adaptive or maladaptive for just like a second. Because that is an external attribution of an innate process. It's a judgment. It's it is a yeah, yeah. yeah, it is an evaluation from an external source looking at the behavior of a human and believing that we could determine what is best for that individual. So there is like a profound amount of hubris in yeah. in like in even using that language. And personally I would like to change it. 
<laughs> I, I think there's good yeah. reason to, um, at least conceptually. Again, I think as as AIP exists in the fundamentals of EMDR, there is use in holding curious space for what is adaptive. But to me, we have to understand first, what does that mean something isn't mm-hmm. when we call something adaptive? Yeah. And I, I, I don't have nearly the reaction to the word adaptive as I do to maladaptive. Mm-hmm. I believe in adaptivity. I don't believe in maladaptivity. Mm-hmm. Like, and and the, um, the reasons why I think are because of what information processing has taught us and showed us. Um, so to go to that question of why does all of this matter, <laughs> right? Like even in this conversation, there's probably a lot of people wondering like, what, where is this going as far as EMDR is concerned? And to me, the thing that um, felt disappointing about EMDR after probably a year and a half to two years of practicing it is that in its original form, there was no guidance or at least very little guidance of what do we do when it doesn't go the way you told me it was supposed to go? How do I partner with the system when what you told me was going to work, the partnering that of BLS, the partnering of the protocol, when clearly that's not enough, right? And the, the need for something more, something more nuanced than trust me, it'll work right? The post-it note that I had that said, trust the process for years, (laughs) eventually Mm. needed some nuancing of trust the process, but also really get clear on what's happening and why it's happening. Um, And so for me, like looking deeper and learning more about information processing was when I started to be able to make sense of, um, oh, this is what adaptive information processing is in a much broader scale than what I was originally taught in, in EMDR basic training. Um, to me, the the original version of AIP was correct in the sense that the tip of the iceberg is a part of the iceberg, but there is so much more. And and today we get to talk about the the so much more. Um, and so to me, that's why this matters for EMDR is because when when the basic version doesn't work, are we done or are, is it just the beginning? And for us, we all believe it's just the beginning, which is very exciting. So, mm-hmm. so how do you want to guy? How do you want to go in? Like what what's What's step number one? Um, I, I, yeah. So <laughs> I, I, I guess I'll give kind of a, a maybe a short overview of why adaptive information processing maybe isn't um, why there's so many different voices to that mm-hmm. one idea, mm-hmm. and then kind of zoom in as to why it's why it's hard to track the historicity of it, and then break down the words. Yeah, information processing and what is what we're kind of wrestling with what's adaptive versus what is maladaptive mm-hmm. how do we even define those terms but first we've got to zoom into what is information processing mm-hmm. the reason i think that that and cue the start uh-huh. we're <laughs> starting now. here we go yeah. uh-huh. the reason that this that concept feels like it's a little tricky is because in the in the field of research you have waves of neuroscientific inquiry mm-hmm. into trying to understand the sequencing of brain activation and body activation patterns that give way to a behavior. Mm-hmm. So first, biobehavioralism was kind of the main way neurology took a neuros- neuroscientific zoom into the be- just the behaviors. So if we do this, what behavior does, does it get? 
if we have lesion and stroke studies, mm -hmm. how does that impact just broad behavioral patterns? Mm -hmm. That then Which are, they were looking specifically at at sensory motor outcomes yeah, yeah, of yes. those lesion studies and of uh, control normal patients. Yeah. So just looking at what sensory deprivations do they seem to be struggling with? What motor inhibitions are they now forced to live with? Mm -hmm. For how long? What does then their body do in adjusting to mm -hmm. the absence of a previously existing mm -hmm. biobehavioral pattern? Yeah, which is really important to notice that that still counts as information processing. Sure. So just because we're talking about behaviors and not cognitions doesn't mean we're not talking about information processing. Which you'll, that's a, that's like a, a giveaway a little bit to something you'll notice as we develop this conversation is that information processing is a multi-systemic function of mm. our integrated mind and body. Mm -hmm. So it's not only orienting towards conscious thought mm -hmm. or even cognition. Right. as much as it is stimuli of embodied experience. Yeah. yeah. So I feel like that asks people to immediately broaden their definition of information, mm -hmm. right? Sure. We're, we're used to information feeling like, oh, it's a thought that I have. It's a sentence that I read in a book that contains some bit of data that mm -hmm. I am now thinking about. It's right? a notion. Yeah, it's a, a notion, <laughs> an idea. Um, but what you're saying, Bridger, is that this way of thinking about information is all of the way that sensory data comes into a human organism. Um, yeah. And uh, well, yeah, even just think about some of the implications of the former understanding of information processing neurobiologically, what that would then limit our, the, the amount of our system that would be involved in that task would be devastating mm -hmm. to how integrated or authentic that experience would be to what's actually going on. But if we understand it as a multiple levels of experience that all count, quote unquote, as information, then we're really looking at a massive stimuli information interchange in the brain, mm -hmm. yeah. um, trying to then code, I don't want to go too fast, but yeah. code and pair previously attempted responses, uh, experiences of responses, et cetera, to make the most uh, beneficial, I'm going to stay away from adaptive, mm -hmm. the most beneficial choice for internal experience and external behavior that's likely to lead to more survival than less. Right? Yeah. So I want to use a little bit of a metaphor to kind of help bring over that concept into something that people might be more familiar with. So in EMDR basic training, one of the things that gets said a lot is neurons that fire together, wire together. Totally. Right. Like, OK, so here's a familiar phrase. And what you're talking about is what that actually means. <laughs> yeah. Right. So so we have this sort of image in our head of like, oh, two neurons fire and then they're touching each other. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That is true. But the the deep complexity of how all of that is happening, how quickly it's happening and the um, the fact that it's not always just two little neurons <laughs> that mm. are doing that. It's these massive systems. This is happening at multiple level levels and layers of information processing all at once. So um, in a very uh, basic way, but also a much more complex way, that phrase applies to what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I love the Dan Siegel, very easy quip, which is that you can think of information 
as energy that has been put in a form. So that's what the that's energy yeah. is in form. So there's information. The behavioralist kind of zoom into that lens is how is energy that is coming in sensory motor wise, mm -hmm. viscerally, being formed and then producing a behavior. Yeah. yeah. So then that gave way to the cognitive neuroscience. Which, just to give some time there, that is including inherited philosophy of science from Darwin. Like yes. from yeah. the 19th century into, you know, just a lot of what was even in the early behaviorists of the 20th century, we were still functioning from a behavioral experience standpoint and then it would like catapult into psychoanalytic thought so mm -hmm. the behavior holds an unconscious etc but it's from the body that this emerges and we don't really know how yet until the neuroscientists came and started to follow that breadcrumb trail yeah okay so i have a selfish curiosity at some yeah. point when it's relevant if if it is when did this get cross-pollinated with phenomenology did it yeah it it did um phenomenology i think and you can correct me if i'm wrong but really it feels like there was a massive wave of integration that happened in the 80s and 90s yeah. and phenomenology started to become respectable uh -huh. in the 80s yeah. with Mon per uh, monty perlow um abram merlo ponty sorry <laughs> that was a really monty good <laughs> whoa <laughs> that was cool yikes um yeah. yeah yeah so some of those phenomenologists started to get credit in these mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. circles uh the one that's coming to my brain is that dan siegel talks mm -hmm. a lot about phenomenology and yeah. has interviewed phenomenologists in his creation of yes interpersonal neurobiology yeah. so part of why i asked that question besides the obvious reason of you know i i like it uh personally but the um have you guys ran across the word qualia you guys yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah so what you guys are describing is phenomenology uses the word qualia as mm -hmm. um bits of uh sensory and perception data that yeah. come in all forms um so you know, maybe we'll um, just between all of us call it qualia processing. That will never take off. <laughs> should though. It should. It should. It's, it's, nice. more, it's more accurate, yeah. right? Um, please Google that. By the way, qualia yeah. is just a cool word to know about, and then you can use it and feel neat and you know, imagine it's a good being SAT on Jeopardy. word. It is. It's, it's excellent. Yeah, it's it's stuff. really uh, similar to effluvia and like yeah. words that I enjoy. Mm. Right. Okay. There's anyway. a lot of e's. <laughs> They're the best words. So qualia is those um, bits of sensory data that come in and sort of hit our nervous system in all forms. Mm -hmm. And so that's a way of understanding um, we're not talking about information in the sense that we usually do, where it's much bigger and broader. Yeah. Yeah. And, and really, you can think of the biggest question we're all asking at, at some level is how do qualia, these qualitative bits of information or energy that come to us, how do we transform those into how we are in the world? Because, mm -hmm. spoiler alert, none of us do it the same. Yeah. Yes. We all do it similarly, but we, all, we have our specific flavors. Yeah. One of the things in EBT that we do a lot is we, we hyphenate words mm. that have lost their hyphenation, mm. unfortunately. Um, but I love energy information. Mm. like mm -hmm. to hyphenate information mm -hmm. um, because that really is like what we're talking about and in in formation is a volitional act which is predicated on previous experience mm -hmm. so 
that to me gives a great simple understanding of the way you process energy information is a result of your present orientation to past experience mm-hmm. yeah yeah i another one that we use is re-hyphen membering yeah yeah like to remember something is to reactivate the parts of you that were quote-unquote membered mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. at the time of the experience mm-hmm. um but this feels are we getting well so i'm gonna bring us back okay okay because we haven't even stopped. We haven't even got through our timeline here, <laughs> which is really, really quite. How are we it's doing? Notice that. Like, is this... I, I don't feel like I'm helping grounding at all because I, I have, I have like so many. I'm like, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna remember which hat I'm wearing right now. Jen, how are you feeling? Because I'm waiting for my moment to to, to ground. <laughs> so we haven't okay. even gone yeah. long enough okay. to do that. Well, that, that's okay. I think we're getting there, and and I'll hold faith in that. So there's the. Behavioral movement in neuroscience, which then gave way to, in really the 80s and 90s, the cognitive movement, so cognitive neuroscience, away from behavioral neuroscience. Cognitive neuroscience, with its scanning of the brain and really deep locating of brain activation patterns through specific tasks. The parallel history saw an incredible evolution in imaging technology, Mm -hmm. which I think captivated some of our fantasy as a field that, oh, if I can watch it happen, I will have a better understanding of what it means and what it does. The problem, or the shortcoming at least, is that the technology that was so wrapped up in that fantasy measured cortical processing Mm -hmm. so because a whole field was now enraptured by a imaging system and its Mm -hmm. associated philosophy and theory that was measuring cognitive process that's what we look to as a primary mover in information processing at least neurobiologically from what we could see yeah Mm -hmm. it's only recent recently and even still we're not able to measure deep brain process um but we know that it's actually primary. Yeah. yeah. And and why that matters is because as a field, we jumped from the body to the highest form of thinking yeah. and we left something unconsciously. In the middle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We left the middle part of the brain kind of unobserved. We didn't really care about it. So then in the cognitive neuroscience world, it became very focused on the modules in the brain. This is where you hear a language like the amygdala, the prefrontal cortex, the hippocampus, the hypothalamus, the HPA axis, mm-hmm. which is actually not quite modular, but yeah. these zones of firing, mm-hmm. cognitive neuroscience was looking at how do we study their purpose? So what does the amygdala do? And in that way, the field drifted a little bit more towards like a rigid, the amygdala signals the alarm for threat Mm -hmm. it's just basically a fear circuit Mm -hmm. the hippocampus remembers that's all it does Mm -hmm. yeah which is is true in some way but it missed the way the brain actually functions which is more as a whole system more integrated yeah and i will say which this is to me just kind of tipping my hat in respect for the authorship that we learned an immense amount from Mm -hmm. the revolution of cognitive neuroscience especially what comparison studies they inherited the methodology from previous behaviorists like let's study lesion or Mm. damage against a normal control and now we're really going to learn 
oh, like the left hemisphere is an incredibly accurate system and the modulars or the modules embedded within it are very detail oriented. We learned that through the revolution of the cognitive neuroscience. Uh, and similarly, we, I think we're exposed to how mysterious the right hemisphere mm -hmm. was still then at that time. Mm -hmm. um, we know, you know, just very little amount from that chunk of time about what role the right hemisphere really plays, especially with things like memory. Yeah. Um, but it was an incredibly beneficial time for the philosophy of therapy right. um, because we learned a lot of what was happening in the brain and what it could mean for clinical applications. Yeah. Yeah. This is also why you see cognitive behavioral therapy overlapping this, this cognitive neuroscience revolution because they were teaming up in a mm -hmm. way. What you're measuring, I can influence Yeah, uh, from a behavioral or therapy yeah. standpoint. Which if you were to just read maybe the highest level of EMDR world, like Francine's book, she has this flow chart that shows that in trauma, the logical thinking goes off, quote unquote, offline. Off right? yeah. And so then the reason we have maladaptive behaviors is because they're, we're utilizing only emotional mm -hmm. thinking. Mm -hmm. And that, like, that could, I don't, in the way she sets up the assessment phase, I don't think she actually believes that in its most rigid sense. Mm -hmm. yeah. But if you just read it at a high level, you can start to get these kind of wonky beliefs about our clients that, oh, you just need more thinking. Well, we, we need to get need... your emotions on track so that we can get your thinking back and yeah. then it'll be better. Right? Yeah, we just right. need to think differently about the past. Yeah. And we'll do this kind of thing to get there. But the way the brain is organized and this is why the historicity is a little bit important it's very muddy even high level but we went from the body to thinking mm -hmm. and then it's only in the last like 35 40 years that we've that the field has really given attention to that middle part right. which is the emotional affective realm of mm -hmm. the brain which mm -hmm. we've talked about the cortical zone which is like the thinking cap of your brain the subcortical just below that, your brain stem and some of these really dense inner parts of your brain, they hold so much information mm -hmm. and are so important to how we process the world that to forget about that is to go totally off track. You would lose all meaning yeah. of your inquiry. Yeah. So now we have kind of the full picture of we can't leave any of the waves behind. We have to make sure that we're bringing in in our understanding of what is information processing we have to look at the body we have to look at the thinking we have to understand how we think about the world and the explicit articulation we're giving something like beliefs but then we also have to look at that middle zone of how our body is feeling emotionally that directs our behaviors that then gives way to thinking what would you call that third wave that the first two have a name right? affective neuroscience affective yeah neuroscience. yeah yes Okay. Yeah, um, a great two great books that I would recommend. One is Gounod, which is the neuropsychology of the unconscious. Uh, I think it's twenty seventeen, nineteen maybe. It's one of those odd numbers. And then um, oh, it's sixteen maybe. But <laughs> and then the other is um, neuropsychology of the unconscious and archaeology of the mind. Archaeology of the mind. Pongsep and Bivens. Yeah, Pongsep and Lucy Bivens, twenty twelve which is an affective neuroscientist and a therapist, but also a therapist. Very helpful. There's a brand new book that's also, if you're an audible person, um, called The Hidden Spring by Mark Salms. Oh. And he, the first two chapters on that, he does a lot of literature review as to why it's important to 
look at these unconscious processes of the brain beyond just what we think and how we behave. Um, so now we have kind of the groundwork set up to, if we're going to understand information processing, we can't understand it by these little systems that work individually but detached yeah. from one another. Let's kind of do maybe a little synopsis so far. Because um, if we're kind of drifting out of consciousness <laughs> on this, like I just want to give like a really brief anchor that information is bigger than cognition, so much bigger. Um, mm -hmm. It is energy information. So that means every piece of stimuli that you're picking up on both inside yourself and outside yourself before it touches a cognitive augmentation through memory. Um, that's, that's energy information first. And the way now we're going to talk about it is how does that get made sense of in the brain? Yeah. What, is, what, did, what do you both think <laughs> of this? I don't want to lose. <laughs> I, I think the threads that I'm following, um, there's a couple... Well, there's a couple that are probably just for me, and then there's a couple that I think would might be helpful to others. One is the the observation of um, that in the flow of the development of all of this, and like tracking the lineage of um, this theory, that it it really matches the field as a whole, right? So um, we're not just talking about EMDR; we're talking about being therapists and you know, kind of where we come from in the research lineage. So yeah. it's it's bigger. Relational scientists. Yes, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, you know, thinking outside of the, the box of just EMDR, I think, is relevant for this. The other um, thought that I think might be helpful for people is that when you're describing the, the gifts of cognitive neuroscience, but then also the, the limitations and mistakes, Pitfalls, the, yeah. the phrase that hopefully we're all familiar with of uh, correlation does not mean causation really applies to the whoopsie that was made there. Um, but it's also a really understandable conclusion given the limits of the information that they currently had. And that, to me, just highlights the need for us to stay open to the emergence of new information constantly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. The limitations of the information alongside the advances in the technology mm -hmm. as a visual meaning-making species, I cannot highlight enough how much empathy I have for the field at that point yes. that for the first time we could see into oh, how exciting. The, so uh, the brain when it's alive. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we can look at healthy brains. Yes. Mm -hmm. We can look at brains just like doing the daily brain thing, yeah. not a lesioned brain or a dead brain, yeah. right? We, we can see it alive and in action. And because yeah. of that, I, I think, just personal opinion, that we forgot that what is now on top was once below. Mm -hmm. we just forgot right. <laughs> i think we became captivated by what's on top right. um, and there, there's also some like other cultural pieces that surround all of that that yeah. we do not have time to get into but i want to name them because it is relevant the fact that this was happening in european and western countries that had a very quantitative um, uh, yeah quantitative uh, dualistic approach to everything having to do with the mind and the body there was some religious reasons why we were excited about leaving the body behind yeah. <laughs> and thinking that it maybe wasn't relevant to being human wouldn't that be nice i think therefore um, i am i think yeah. therefore i am uh, that was Descartes' oopsie um but also we have some religious stuff around like the flesh and the body is where all the sin problems come from and and the desire to be more godlike, which we thought was where our logical and cognitive mind came in. 
Um, and so there were some cultural things happening right around the same time that I think um, are relevant to, to why we got excited about it and attached mm-hmm. to it. Yeah. And uh, true to form, um, the culture is shifting in our sciences as well. All of it is swirling around each other and informing each other. So, yeah. mm-hmm. If I could kind of say like a summary of my own, it's that adaptive information processing is in a system. You don't have an information processing system in your brain. Mm-hmm. The whole brain, your whole body, yes. everything you are is processing energy, which means it's processing information. Mm-hmm. You're the, not going to look at a, a textbook and see like information processing pointed at an pointed area here. of your brain. <laughs> but I think, well, and I will say that there, there are the, I, there's the implicit belief that the prefrontal cortex, this yeah. zone of reflective thinking, exactly. which is functioning up here in the front of your brain, just behind your eyebrows and your forehead, that that is the zone of information processing. And I think if we, if we believe that, we'll miss our clients. Because what, what I can reflect on as myself is dependent upon these deep processes of what is mm-hmm. safe to even... Opportunities of access. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. to even see, be, feel, experience. So this, our thinking, our ideas about ourselves in the world is not just the only information we're ever processing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My mind's working on some pieces and it's yeah. all moving so fast. It's like, ah, how do I keep up? But where my reflection is going on this in the therapy space is all of this is happening at the time in the past, right? When in real time, when these traumatic experiences are occurring or adaptive experiences are occurring, but then we're also trying to reaccess this these systems, yeah. um, this way of processing in present day. And so, how uh, I'm not even sure how to assemble this, but like knowing that our we're building our understanding of the world, building our understanding of self through this information that's coming in and how we're storing it, how we're making sense and meaning of it. And that is what's carrying forward then sure. into the day-to-day of how we're reacting, yeah. responding, making sense of, making meaning of. I so appreciate that question because I think it gives us an easy softball to highlight the importance of moving away from modularity. Because the hippocampus, I'm sure it's talked about in this book, actually, like the hippocampus is an essential component to a larger system. I'll be generous that way, but it is not the center of memory mm-hmm. in, in a human being. It's not where memory is held. No. Yeah. Um, it is, again, essential as a component of a larger system. Mm-hmm. But to get to your point, our, and we have some articles that we can the show notes are going to be really extensive on this episode, <laughs> but um, like just in Koziel's work, what is remembered is activated in the systems that initially process the experience. Just to like sit on that for just a second. Can you say it again? It's yeah. slightly different. Yeah. The way we remember is activating the systems that initially processed the experience Mm -hmm. so and why is that significant to emdr because it really is (laughs) yes it is because (laughs) it's not it's uh, my mind is overjoyed with this moment (laughs) but it it shows to me how preposterous it is to chase cognition because our cognition is a higher order 
late maturational process. It comes to us the latest of any of these systems. When we ask that system to remember what it was not there to process, Mm -hmm. it has to filter. It has to scour through the library of information that is in the body, augmenting, skewing, knocking things around it's creating a china shop yeah like like mm-hmm. making stuff up sometimes it has to yes. yeah. it wasn't there to hold the experience in the yeah. first place the way we recall information is by activating the systems that are initially process those right. experiences so if we're going to process something early on just as an easy example your your memory quote unquote what you're going to get if you ask a conscious representation of that experience is the meaning made of that experience. It's not what actually happened. And that's really, really important for EMDR or any trauma resolution therapy. To me, it just honors the meaning of the feeling Mm -hmm. as opposed to asking it to explain itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So like this point feels like maybe one of the most important points that will be made on this episode. So I don't want to move too fast right here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So to, to highlight why, why in my body that gets so essential um, is because as an EMDR therapist, really any kind of therapist trying to do anything in regards to making edits to how the past is held, um, when when we go to work with a past experience, effectively we are reconjuring the past mm. in the present. And the only way that we have done that effectively is if the whole information processing system, meaning the whole body, is having a an experience right now that is at least some version or percentage of exactly what happened back then. Because we cannot hope to make edits if it's not right here, right now. Like it has to be in the room with us, which means it has to be in the body right now. Otherwise, we are simply telling a story about what happened. And we are, um, yeah, we're waving at the past from the present, imagining that we could do something simply by talking about it without it in the room. Um, and the, the, the basic protocol can do that, mm. but it doesn't always do that. Mm-hmm. And if, if we don't know how to determine if we have been successful at fully conjuring the past moment and the present, that is one of the main reasons why EMDR doesn't always work. Or it doesn't work the way that we are told it was supposed to work. Yeah. It's this this conjuring into the present um, that that we have to know how to track and partner with and, and elicit and help our clients hold <laughs> and yeah. stay in long enough. Um, so that to me is like this is the art of what we do. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. I can talk about that passionately for a long time. <laughs> yeah, I think the the difference. I think you can get you can help a client get better at talking about the trauma yes. with a lower level of activation. Mm-hmm. And that is a form of differential information processing, but it's fragmented. It's disintegrated. You're yeah. competing is, with extinction. Yeah. It's not Yeah. Which, it's not erasure or annulment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I love that you guys interviewed Bruce because <laughs> Bruce, we have that like I'm, I'm, like I'm his best friend I feel like I am but he doesn't know that I am anyway he um, seems real willing to be friends I'm just saying uh, so. yeah, I, yeah. I have confidence he'll listen to this yeah. episode yeah. um, but yeah the classic example that comes up for me is you know if I have a person walking through the NDR protocol and they're coming to 
what feels like an adaptive piece of information, a positive cognition that feels more integrative. But there's the twinge of their ankle mm -hmm. beneath, like beneath my couch that's holding tension. Mm -hmm. If, and in the protocol, this is like built in. We do the body scan to see, is there any part of you that doesn't quite feel like this is totally done? But if we just kind of breeze past that and really don't dwell in that, the information that we are processing will have a piece missing. And the beautiful thing about the brain, and this is why I want to return back to Jen, your kind of posture of AIP, was that it's very relieving and reorienting for us as clients and clinicians, is because the brain can generalize. Mm -hmm. The metaphor I use with clients Incredibly is, well. Mm -hmm. Like you can get kind of what a puzzle is aiming at if you have like the kind of the half or the majority of those pieces. Mm -hmm. But trauma stores these dense pieces of information somewhere in us. This is like Bessel van der Kolk's idea. Mm -hmm. The body is keeping this tension held somewhere within us. And if we feel safe, we can bring that up and complete the puzzle. Yeah. If we don't, we can maybe add one or two pieces, which gives us a little bit of a better view of it, but there's still gonna be, a, the majority of the pieces are missing. Yeah. Okay, so, so here's a EMDR-relevant critique, a critique of EMDR. I think that often we get a zero that is happening on one level of information processing, and it is not actually touching the deeper levels. Mm -hmm. And I would love us to all not be shocked when something happens in life and suddenly there's a new layer of distress that's attached to a memory that we thought we processed and we really did get a zero and it seemed really true in the moment. Mm -hmm. What the heck happened? Did I miss it? Did I fail? Did the client lie to me? No. Yeah. <laughs> there was a, something shifted in the system where a, a new depth of generalization was made available. And at least in my experience, that's often a sign that therapy is going well, yeah. that new levels of safety have emerged and now they can have awareness of what their ankle is holding. Mm -hmm. Where at the original time of processing, they couldn't. Mm -hmm. that, that was off limits for whatever reason. Yeah, yeah. yeah I think like, this gets into the conversation of, so if, if information processing is a connection of many systems that are in our brains and in our bodies, how the heck do we organize that? How do we know as clinicians like where there might be fragmentation and how to find those fragments? Mm -hmm. One really easy one that you're just mentioning that I think relates a lot to attachment theory, which I imagine most listeners are slightly aware of if they've listened to you. If not, pretty into it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're jamming with it. Um, is hemispheric differentiation in the brain as it relates to uh, attachment styles. And so hemispheric differentiation, for those who don't know, your brain is split in half. It has two hemispheres. To a very large degree. Yeah. yeah. Um, asymmetrically, fun fact, <laughs> that your right hemisphere is bigger than your left hemisphere. Yeah. Biology gives us these little breadcrumbs of what's really important in life, <laughs> sure but does. that's for another episode. <laughs> um, and a lot of this you can find from Ian Gilchrist. He has a book called Master's, Master and His Emissary. He also has a smaller, much more digestible yes. text <laughs> called Ways of Attending. Yes. Or a much larger collection called The Matter, the of, matter things. of Things, <laughs> which is two volumes, each a thousand pages each. But yeah. say the short one, I guess. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, the ways more of important one. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, whoa, I don't know about that. Uh, more important than that, it is more important for our listeners to have access to that one because the digestibility and um, time. Yeah, <laughs> we don't want to overwhelm the system right. even with positive experiences yeah. because even positive can be overwhelming therefore disintegrating and can't it. It. Yeah. Yeah. too much of a good thing mm -hmm. but but the idea is that um and 
Melissa, to speak to what you're talking of, like how, why might someone play the game of EMDR instead of pro- reprocess trauma? And, it, and to me, there, there could be a breadcrumb in the attachment styles as it relates to hemispheric prioritization. Okay, so I have right- to say something. Okay. Here's a spicy moment. Play the game does not mean that that game is conscious, mm. right? No. Or, or that it is intentional on their part no, to fool not. the therapist. Yeah, it's intent, right? no way. Attachment right. isn't conscious. Right. Like what you're talking about to me is unconscious appraisal mm-hmm. of even something like a zero to 10 scale. Mm-hmm. Attachment styles are going to respond to that invitation to rate something. It is so subjective. Yeah, mm-hmm. differently. Yes. If my attachment history has shown that my subjective experience is irrelevant, sure, I'll give you zero. Right. Or whatever. Like, yeah. I don't really even know what this is about. It hurts to me. So what qualifies as hurt to you? Okay. Yeah. Like seven, like six. I don't know. What? So that, that's a narration of the dismissive yes, attachment. exactly. It does not sound like that in the preoccupied exactly. body. Exactly. But so that's what I want to highlight that's a is that yeah. it's, a, it's an unconscious appraisal yeah. of a parameter given to the system, yeah. which is where information yeah. processing, we have to talk about this right. in information processing. Yeah. Um, because it, <laughs> humans are so relational as a social mammal in their organism architecture that even the way I make sense of my internal experience is based on my external experience. Mm-hmm. So that right there, it's, it's absurd to think that I can give you a self-report questionnaire and you're going to give it to me as you experience it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that just that emphasizes that when we talk about information processing, we're not just thinking of it as the past thing, right? right? Like, and I feel like it's introduced that way in EMDR of like the brain made sense of this experience in this certain way. Like, no, it's, it's happening constantly, which means the way in which those systems have come to understand the world are being played out now yeah. in yes. session, in its relationship to EMDR, in its relationship to the therapist. Like, in fact, it's constantly. It's, that's personality. Yes. Mm -hmm. Like our personality is what you just described. So when we're thinking about going and retrieving a specific memory for the sake of reprocessing, we have to be so attuned to what's happening right now in the moment as a way of influencing that. It's Mm -hmm. not just the protocol, eight phases, the bilateral. It is the whole experience. Every bit of energy that's Mm -hmm. in formation in that present yes. moment is going to have an influence over how we shift that past experience. Yeah, yeah that's why, and, and maybe the words you could play around with even farther, that recall is the brain's invitation through the hippocampus that sends signals out to say, hey, I think we need to go back in time. Mm-hmm. Remembering is the parts of them that was there at the time. <laughs> yeah. Do they feel safe enough to come into a re-evoked Re-evoked state, yeah. which is where, like last episode with Bruce Perry or Bruce Ecker, oh, oof, too many Bruce's in my life. <laughs> but, um, uh, he, he is looking at the prime like need of you have to activate before you can reconsolidate. Yeah. You have to get the reactivation of the network. So then, it's not just recall. It's not just talking about the past. Mm-hmm. If the past isn't present. We won't get any reconsolidation. We talk about this in EBT all the time that that recollecting is going from the present to the past. Remembering is when the past comes into the present. Mm. That again, re hyphen collecting, re hyphen membering 
is that differentiation. And I think we think we're doing remembering mm. in EMDR when often we're doing recollecting. Yeah. And that yeah. is something we can, as therapists, watch for mm-hmm. in the process of EMDR. We can be looking at how do we activate the remembering, not just the recall of the experience. Right. Mm-hmm. And the piece of how do we influence the information processing right now mm-hmm. as a way to influence the way it's being processed, yeah, totally. reprocessed. Yeah. That then. to me is a wonderful treatment plan yeah. uh, from an EMDR perspective of are we addressing the recollecting and are we addressing the remembering? Because mm-hmm. the problems they're having symptomatically and the triggers they're experiencing or the difficulties they're having interpersonally are a combination of both. But we can't just say like, okay, give me the 10 memories, mm. first and the worst, mm-hmm. and let's start going. Um, that's recollecting, and then you might hit something that causes a remembering, and then then we're into really deep associated waters. Is it accurate yeah. that recall is the cognitive process of it? Like, is recall just cognitively retrieving that, and the remembering is activating more into like the sensory experience or the body experience? Again, muddy answer. Um, Conscious recall is a domain of neuropsychological health um, in terms of how much you can recollect mm-hmm. um, and how coherent that narrative then mm-hmm. is. But recall, I think, has a connotation of a mix of remembering, recollecting, just that somehow I'm familiar with this experience before. So it depends, I think, on which domain you're you're really speaking to. Um, recall from the neuroscientific side is going to mean something different than from the psychological side in its associations. Um, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would just echo your answer. The, yeah. Uh, one thing that I will say is that you're already on the trail of that. If we're going to talk about anything being adaptive. It has to be both and. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there has to be an integration of both, which is where hemispheres become very easy to and very overgeneralized, which is a critique of it in the scientific community. But that broadly speaking, the right is remembering and the left is recalling. Okay. So <laughs> the dismissive strategy mm-hmm. is probably going to want to recall a lot of things, but let's not activate because mm-hmm. I might over be stimulated to yeah. remembering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Whereas maybe a preoccupied is all for remembering, but not in the conscious, conscious recalling of what that means across yeah. the coherent mm-hmm. self-narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's already, already we're starting to get just one piece. Yeah. That's the biggest division of your brain. Yeah. That's as far as system. So right hemisphere, left hemisphere. You have a vertical organization that is tons of systems. One of the ones that I think is helpful maybe in the next rendition of this conversation is um, affective neuroscience has a division of the brain that is three-tiered. So you have a primary process, you have a secondary process, and you have a tertiary process. Prime, so the vertical hierarchical yeah, organization. bottom up. Yep, mm-hmm. yeah. exactly. And oh, we should just like it's not linear, that it's but, not linear, yeah. but uh, that's just... <laughs> Just for us to say right Virtual now. Virtual others we, to come into my we head. We said it. Yes. We satisfied <laughs> yeah, yeah, our voices. Yeah. Conceptually, it's really helpful to just like, don't think about that. Think You can think in linear terms for a second. So then you have primary processes that are homeostatic in Low nature. Brain. So you're thinking like, 
Is my heart beating? Am I breathing? How's my blood pressure? Do I need to swallow? Yeah, Actually, yeah. you're not Am thinking any of that. Yeah. It's just yeah. happening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Thankfully. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully. That then gives way to, um, oh, why am I? There's emotional affects, homeostatic affects. Oh, um, oh, this is going to bust. The secondary. Me, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, not the secondary, but the, the third part of. Um, third part of primary. I don't know how to work my computer. <laughs> um, Oh, he punks up would be so mad at me right now. Um, <laughs> or he would anyway, be really understanding. So this primary <laughs> process is you have homeostatic affect, sensory affect, there it is, yeah. nailed it, and then uh, emotional affects. Yes. This. So you go from, is my body functioning? How is my body feeling, feeling. in the world? Mm-hmm. And do I need to do something? Mm-hmm. So that's a primary process. All housed mm-hmm. in that low tier yeah. structures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You can start to see how trauma or overwhelming experiences without secure oh. attunement can start to shape those processes. One of the essential components to understanding the homeostatic to sensory to emotional is that your sense of those things is experientially dependent. Yes. Hmm. So it's not like, I'm trying to think of just an easy example. It's not like 70 degrees just feels good to me right. because it's 70 degrees. It's because I've learned that more often than not, good things happen when it's yeah. 70 degrees outside. Yeah. Yeah. Or whatever. 70 degrees feels safe and familiar to your body. Right. Yeah. And it then, doesn't feel too yes. cold. It doesn't feel too hot. That's I right. feel like I'm pretty prepared no matter what's going in on. In Malaysia, yeah. we put our coats on at 70 degrees. Yeah, exactly. Well, yeah. So yes. that's where in the, second, in the secondary processes, that second tier of the hierarchical organization of the brain, you get uh, like where you have emotional learning. Mm-hmm. So now I've learned that certain homeostatic sensory and emotions are worth paying attention to, and I've also learned that some aren't. At the third tier, these tertiary processes, this is where you can start to have conscious activation. Uh, Pong Sep will say, intention to act. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The primary processes are intentions in action. So these tertiary processes are based on how my body has felt through experience and what I've learned about am I living in North America or, or Malaysia and how does 70 degrees feel? Mm-hmm. Then I can intend an action but trauma then you can see how trauma would start to fragment that Mm -hmm. i have parts of me that aren't safe here so my brain is going to scatter them and prioritize the parts of me that kept me safe and alive yeah Mm -hmm. that then is going to be built upon over and over again which if the trauma is not reprocessed yeah and for good reason because if if those experiences showed me that a part of myself was not safe to have or to to you know intentionally disintegrate would be a survival positive experience then the trauma to me is a I'm grateful for that experience if it truly had the consequence that I was afraid it did mm-hmm. and for me the present moment hasn't disconfirmed the fear of the past so why would I misremember and suddenly betray what the trauma taught me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that feels like it, it shows up all the time in therapy, even non-EMDR therapy, where someone has gone through some form of processing, and they say, like, I know my partner isn't going to leave me, but man, am I scared of that all mm-hmm. the time. Mm-hmm. That's, that's cueing us that, okay, there's some sort of fragmentation happening, mm-hmm. that there's a part of them that wasn't along for the process that felt the new information that I know my partner isn't going to leave me. Right. Right. Yeah. So 
then in therapy, that's that's where we go and we try to reactivate. We try to just confirm and bring that part along. Mm-hmm. Um, that is just so vertical. S- split the brain in half and we've organized it in tiers bottom up. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I want to make a comment right there in regards to a question that I get a lot in consultation around what can you target with EMDR when it comes to things that people come in complaining about in therapy? Um, things like, well, can you target headaches? Can you target digestive issues? Can we target, um, you know, everything that has to do with inflammation in the body? Can you target struggles with getting pregnant? And are we just targeting the emotional bits around that? You know, the, the feeling about these physical experiences. And what you just described is, no, we can target the, uh, the primary body process, the way that we are homo- homeostatically regulating ourselves. So somebody that resolves a previous experience through EMDR, their temperature regulation system in their body could change as a result. Yeah. Like it can go that deep in that primary. If you did EMDR in the way of chasing cognitions, no, no you then, can't. Yeah, absolutely. But if you went from an energy information bottom-up experiential process of EMDR, that's what changes. Like <laughs> that's that's where I think Francine was right on when she said that this is an innate process that we are moving towards health given the right circumstances. I think that's exactly right. It's but health there, and this is a part I definitely want to make sure we get to about the external attribution of adaptivity, because just because a person is plagued with various somatoform experiences and rashes and inflammation and all of that, that's not fair to look at that and say that's maladaptive. That's right. And that's, again, a, a major point to make from an information processing standpoint that those to that system are a a square investment. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure, the byproducts are debilitating, but the black hole it saved me from is unimaginable. And so I will choose this every single time rather than the fear of the unknown in that black hole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and even, even more basic along with that is that 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 energy that we're talking about, that information that is always trying to be processed, the body must do something with that. Like it, it cannot just evaporate into thin air. It doesn't just suddenly become irrelevant. It's held. Yeah. It it must be somewhere, and the the body makes very uh, strategic decisions about where to hold that. And so, if it decides to hold some of that in the form of skin irritation and rashing, like, I'm sorry, there's some versions that I would take hands down, right, um, over what what could happen instead. Like, the body must do something with it. It doesn't just disappear. So it is always adaptive in the sense that it is trying to store something that it was not safe to release. And so even even if it's not the, the emotional quality of it, it, it can sometimes be this pure physical thing. Yeah. Um, you see that with people that have like physical injuries. Um, I'm thinking of a, a a football player that there there was no uh, emotional despair over the fact that his body had been beat to hell for years, yeah. but his body was storing some very interesting things in interesting places and had to go through an extensive process of release simply because 
um, it it had to put all of that somewhere. Yeah. And and you see you see the body make strategic decisions like that all the time. So I think as therapists we get really fixated on well it must have been emotional for you. No, it must have been energy. It must have been impactful <laughs> mm. in the most literal sense of that word. Yeah. There was an impact that was made, and if there was, and that got stored and held somewhere, then we can process it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I talk to clients and consultees all the time about how emotion is just energy in motion, mm -hmm. and it has been put in a form based on past experience. Right. So, mm -hmm. like, yeah, everything is emotion because it's moving, mm -hmm. it's in motion, mm -hmm. but it might not be like a problem of the football player who got hit over and over again is yeah. emotionally distraught about the fact that he got no. hit over and over no, again. In fact, he rather enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it might be a disparity of. Um, the this conscious self narrative that he chose mm -hmm. something that hurts him mm -hmm. like maybe that's the where the disintegrative part is um, mm -hmm. yeah mm -hmm. that does bring me to like a little bit of a spi you wanted spicy yeah so we came to we came to spicy yeah where and i think it relates to this point of Bridger and i were talking about we said a phrase mal maladaptive is a problem of the mind not the brain so maladaptive information processing is a problem of the brain in relationships in the present, not a problem of the, of the, the mind, mind in relationship yes. in the present, not a problem of the brain. Yeah. The brain is always adaptive and it's struggling to navigate. Is the present really going to be different than the past? Mm -hmm. So I think you need to define difference between mind and brain. Yeah. In that sense. Yeah. 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 I love, and that's a, I just default. I, I uh, throw up signals of Dan Siegel and say, like, <laughs> just go read him. But uh, his... concept for mind-body. Like yeah, yeah, you're going to yeah, get yeah. really well acquainted. His but. definition of the mind is it's an embodied and relational complex, complex process that emerges within and between brains whose primary directive is to form energy into information. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that the mind is not your brain. Mm -hmm. It's also not your body. Mm -hmm. And it is not the self that is just in relationships. Mm -hmm. It is the what you call the mind is when all three of those sit down together. Yes. So how does my brain interact with my body? And how does my body interact with my brain? And how do both of those interact with the world of complex other brain and bodies? Yeah. Then the you mind. have a mind. <laughs> yes. So maladaptive is a problem of the mind, not of the brain. Yeah. That is super important because... If you look at that tripartite distinction of mind, in that maladaptive makes sense. There is tension in this interconnection. There is information that is being utilized that's not active in the environment. So it's creating unnecessary dissonance. That's a maladaptive mind happening. But if we place that mind in the context in which it formed, maladaptive suddenly goes away mm -hmm. that to me shows again we're not talking about a brain problem here we're talking about a mind that is making sense of self in relation to present in the past mm -hmm. that's where adaptive then when we turn to that lens to me that's that's really where we see the true meaning of adaptive information processing mm -hmm. yeah. when you guys were talking at the beginning of the episode about that shift between being like open to the present as well as the past and then you had mentioned um and if with opportunity like it's about time and it's about opportunity, opportunity. yeah maladaptive is never in the present that's adaptive 
whatever's happening in that present moment was adaptive. It's how our systems adapted to it. That later it's about if the opportunity is there in the present to be open to that shift and change and updating the information, but we're still keeping it closed, Mm -hmm. right? We're still staying locked into the past, even though the opportunity for something new is present. Mm -hmm. That's where that maladaptive comes in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I would still, this is again, just the researcher in me, like I would still trust the reported experience of the individual mm-hmm. in that moment. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Like if I'm interacting with them and it feels like, I think this is probably the past, like coming up, like, don't you see me? Can you be here? And they continue to choose old strategies. For me, my posture is one of reverence to that. Mm-hmm. Like I'm doing everything I can to offer you safety. What, am, what do I need to do? What do we need to do? How do we need to be together? that can show your system the invitation to safety and opportunity necessary to reconsolidate these previously Mm -hmm. stored experiences so that you can actually change, experience the change that you want. Mm -hmm. I think even like socially, what's looked at as maladaptive in the way that we talk about it in society, it's that, you know, there's, there's an opportunity to experience something different here, but your system is still very close to that and locked into the past mm-hmm. and only able to reference what that was of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, mm-hmm. the brilliance of Ecker's work is that he is coming off of so much neuroscience that sees that the past, future, and present are never divorced from one another. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. You are taking current, present stimuli and you are checking your past experiences to make a future prediction, and that is happening unconsciously. That order to me is super important, even even from an information processing standpoint. You just mapped a very clear uh, intended process for the experience of the brain, where we're using the present to check the past or the future. Yeah, yeah, Dan Siegel says we're remembering the future. So, and what we're calling adaptive is are we remembering the future in a way that's open to it being different from the past? So can we shift maybe what our templates are telling us? The world is this way, which is what Ecker's whole work on shifting schematic or semantic memory is aimed at. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, it's so fascinating that the EMDR community is already on this wavelength. They just might not know it. Yeah. Because Mm -hmm. what is like a hot button in the EMDR Community is somatic intervention, EMDR, and parts work EMDR. You say, I was just going to say, say, yeah. Body is looking at reclaiming the parts of us that are easily forgotten in processing, and parts work is looking at how do I get more of you to be in this present moment. <laughs> Involved. Yeah. yeah. The more of you is seeking integration. That's integration right. isn't fusion, it's or getting rid of parts. Right. It's holding complexity, which means there's more of you but we're together. It's a yeah, balanced it's, ecosystem. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's communication and connection yeah. in real time. Yeah. yeah, And I think that they are hot button out of intuition. Very right? much, yeah. That, Grasping. That, yes, that therapists sense that um, there is something very important here. And when we when we try them with our clients, we see and feel we're onto something, right? Mm-hmm. There, there's power in the in this way of working. And I think that we can sense the um, the importance and the usefulness of it way before we can describe why. Yeah. Um, and and this is this is why I think EMDR needs more of this theory embedded in yeah. it. Yeah. Well, yeah. Even 
Uh, sorry, I just listened to the Ecker episode on the way in, so I'm just gonna re- I'm gonna go back to that so many times. But you know, his recalling of I am intuiting this, and my colleagues are intuiting this in clinical practice. But is somebody else saying the same thing in the biological science? Anyone measuring this? Yeah, yeah. And somebody was. Yeah. And I think I I would speak for Bridger, but I think you are on the same page of like the the desire of ebt would be that it would help therapists to learn that they're not doing wacky therapy right there is there are people talking about what they're doing and making sense of it in a way that can increase confidence yeah the language is jargony the community (laughs) is hard to get into it's really complex and that's why we spin up so much Mm -hmm. but the heart of it is to get to a place of like what your body is intuiting is your adaptive processing right seeing into the future what is possible without having a cognitive quote-unquote like reflective ability to say why and if you're finding something this is just like an ebt like plug like if you're finding (laughs) something useful in therapy i promise you it has neurobiological inquiry behind it available somewhere yeah uh we just have to learn the keywords we have to learn we have to learn how to search it and who to talk to and get access to it yeah and that's why you need friends like, that's why you need friends who are getting phds send it to me yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Real. Mm-hmm. i don't know how notice that if you want to land this one. i feel like i've been straddling the line real hard over here so i'm going to punt to jen <laughs> I feel like there, we need more time, but I know we don't have it. But I hope that doesn't mean that it didn't make sense yet. No, that just feels like there's so much more mm-hmm. that we could there is so much spin more. into, yeah. especially in the, like, the practical application pieces of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you guys, this is me coming from an EBT world, but like you saying that tells me, well, we didn't even touch on systems. That's right. <laughs> we didn't we, even name We went broad. <laughs> yeah, super and broad. That, the show notes are going to give like worlds of information yeah. that can be yeah. tapped into but well, there's so I, much explicit that didn't get named i'm mm-hmm. i'm wondering too if um it might be really useful and interesting to somehow take a snippet of an actual session i don't know how we will make this happen we'll figure that out later and and show the information processing at work in the midst of it because i think this is something that once you've kind of swam around in these waters for a while, you can sort of intuit it and feel it. It's like, ah, there, I know what that is. I can sense that. But at the beginning, it's like, wait a second. Can you please like point to that for me? Like show me where this is happening. Um, show me how you track a primary process versus a secondary process versus a tertiary. That's weird for therapists, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so being able to, to see it in real time and sort of have a walkthrough, I feel like would be really helpful. Yeah. But we need more time. Yeah, well, I think even would... with the soma psyche stuff, like yeah, we do. that's yeah, a that's true. That's possibility true. to even just yeah. give like a side by side commentary yeah. of Which the sessions do, you've recorded. We do have a, a playlist up right now that is, uh, I was a guinea pig for Melissa. Yes, and we did track the processing loops that that happened in that that's in that true. little encounter. And your body was very cooperative and did it very explicitly. Oh, it was very kind. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Seems like it's like innate. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> LOL. Yeah. Yeah. I will say that just as a side quip, like none of this information comes into therapy explicitly with me. Mm-hmm. Like I don't, I don't look at any client and say, well, your primary process sensory affect seems to be a deficit right now. <laughs> uh, what no. are you inhibiting? No. <laughs> but I am curious about what part of them has had to take a backseat yeah. and what part of them is 
is adaptively based on the past being prioritized in this moment. Yeah. yeah. What I like about EBT is it's it's a iterative translation um, that you know we're reading articles. So you, you don't, don't have, have to. to. <laughs> Good job, guys. And oh, then, if you did. <laughs> dang it, <laughs> uh, I didn't get my. Part. Um, and then from once once we read it and we talk, then we can translate it there. And that to me is the process that the scientific community, really just the therapy community, really needs. Mm-hmm. Um, it breaks my heart when a clinician has had such bad experiences in relationship with right. academia that they say, "I don't like to research anymore." From one part of me says, yes, you do. You see clients, don't you? Like you're sitting in case studies every day. Mm -hmm. But to me, that shows that your identity has been badly abused Mm -hmm. um, to forget that you're always, you're always learning. Mm -hmm. Janina Fisher, I went to a training with her and the amount of times she said experiment like, mm-hmm. just run an experiment. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, you're such a scientific thinker, and I love it. I love it. Because, <laughs> you know, you just don't say anything that's like, I'm scientific. Here's certain. The form of her therapy is so scientific. Yeah. Just run an experiment. Yeah. See what part shows up. See what body feels the need to become present. Like, that's right. And an and EMDR can absolutely be that. Too. Oh, yeah. Especially it was an EMDR this, training. Yes. yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for having us. <laughs> thanks for being here. Yeah. Especially you, Caleb. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Bruce, I love having you here too, but you'll be here next week yeah. as well. Not with this hat Kate is a beautiful anomaly. You'll miss the hat. Yeah, I won't get this hat. Yeah. Put you, your, you put your notice that hat back on. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> and don't come without a hat too. I don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway. All right, everybody. Well, thank you so much for listening in. And we will determine if we need another round of this because uh, we might. I'm just saying, Caleb, if you're open. I'm always open. <laughs> yep. Sign me up. I didn't hear default mode network one time. I was I thinking about it. I'm like, well, if, if we talk yeah, about that, we just felt like can't. we were going to go somewhere that we didn't have time to give credit to. And then a part was going to be disintegrated. And then we we're going to drift into maladaptive information processing. And I just wanted us to stay in an adaptive loop. <laughs> So problem of the mind. Thank you, know you for saying. that. If you guys think that he doesn't talk that way normally, you're wrong. That is exactly how he talks all the time. So <laughs> Oh God. It's a good way There's to do it. There's a mirror. There's a mirror. I heard, I heard everything love you, you said. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. that. I enjoyed it. Uh, all right. Thanks everybody for listening. We hope that you have enjoyed this podcast episode and that it will help you help your clients in the process of EMDR therapy. If you are curious to learn more about something that you've heard today, check out our website at www.beyondhealingcenter.com and go to the trainings tab for more information on our upcoming EMDR and case conceptualization trainings. You can also contact us by emailing trainings at beyondhealingcenter.com. If you want to stay connected, please subscribe to this podcast for more episodes leave us a review and follow us on social media by searching Notice That Podcast.